Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 34 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. Um, as you longtime listeners who aren't sick of us yet will know, uh, we always start every week with a little bit of a news roundup. Um, Michelle, what have you been up to this past week? So I just wanted to recap on last week's um, protests for the low pay is not okay sort of day of action last Thursday. Um, a lot low of, pay is not okay being... Low low pay is not okay. Well, it's never okay. No, no, no. But, the... um, but that is the slogan uh, <laughs> that they're using to advertise this broad-based low-wage worker protest campaign that is trying to bring out a number of sectors. Primarily, it's been driven by the fast food workers organizing, but it has also you know, drawn substantial support from... Um, other sectors, um, basically everyone who's sort of clamoring for a higher minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, people generally care about um, equity for low-wage workers. And it is primarily organized by SEIU, but it has attracted, for instance, in New York, where they had um, a bunch of localized actions, where I was reporting from. They had most of the uh, municipal unions come out, I believe, um, and some of the sort of long-standing New York labor organizations that are sort of reaching out in solidarity with unorganized workers, which is actually something new. So we had a rally at Foley Square that was bringing together low-wage workers from a variety of sectors, everybody from you know, the airport workers to uh, the doormen and um, basically everybody who makes the city move. Um, And we have a clip here uh, that was a bunch of union representatives uh, from building trades unions and uh, 32BJ, which is the union that represents many of the door personnel at many of the city buildings. And uh, this is a clip of what they said at the protest. So brothers and sisters, Sharika Area Senate, are you ready to fight with the airport workers? Are you ready to fight with the carwacheros? Are you ready to fight with the fast food workers? Are you ready to fight with the teachers? Are you ready to fight with the CWA? Are you ready to fight with the road? Are you ready to fight? Are you ready? We are ready. And what this concentration today is about is about workers who are unable to make it in this city. We need a new day. The time has come. We need to change the rules that have been imposed on us. We need to make new rules. Rules that we say that no one in New York City who works hard for a living should go out there and live in poverty, go homeless, or be unable to provide for their families. It is a shame when we see employment growing in New York and the number of homeless people growing too. It is a shame when we talk about a recovery and yet 50% of working people are eligible for food stamps. And it is a shame that those who have put their faith on a system that benefits the 1% don't get it. That we need to lift everyone forward. We need an economy that works for 100% of the people. 
so that was uh, last week's protest uh, at the Foley Square here in New York, and it was sort of an echo of uh, the protests that went on nationwide um, in many dozens of different cities, and uh, you can read more about it at In These Times, and you can also listen to last week's podcast when we did sort of a prospective preview and anticipation of that day's events. Um, so far, but things turned turns out to have been, you know, a success as far as the day is concerned. But, of course, the uh, questions remain about the ultimate end game, And, right. uh, you know, we'll, we'll have more to say about that as things shake out. The very, very complicated question of what is success. It's also this very, very complicated question of what is the name of this campaign? Like, this week was low pay is not okay. This is why I'm confused. I know, I know. I the naming frustration. Everybody want wants their, their, their tidy little slogan up there. I think low pay is not okay. It rhymes, kind of. It does. And so that, that helps it does. Remember, right. so for this week at least, and it is hashtagable. So it's if you, true. yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm I'm sticking with that for now. But okay. next week it could be something totally different. One of the many groups of workers that's been involved in some of those actions have been workers that in Washington D.C. who work at buildings and other institutions that get federal subsidies. And so in those cases, we're directly subsidizing those low wages with our tax dollars. In other news this week, there's a new report out from the Democratic Senators on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee that criticizes the government for giving out fat contracts to companies that pay, well, that pay their workers very little, in many cases that have paid millions of dollars in penalties for violating safety or wage laws. Their report said taxpayer dollars are routinely being paid to companies that are putting the livelihoods and the lives of workers at risk. Many of the most flagrant violators of federal workplace safety and wage laws are also recipients of large federal contracts. So the report calculates that some 18 federal contractors, including Imperial Sugar, I don't know if we've talked about Imperial Sugar on this I love podcast the name, before. Though. Yeah, I feel like that's been mentioned in any case. Um, I might be confusing that with American Crystal Sugar, which I know we've talked about in the past. These contractors were among the recipients of the largest 100 penalties issued by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, for those of you who don't always know your labor department uh, alphabet soup, between 2007 and 2012. 32 federal contractors were among the leading companies in the amount of back pay assessed for wage violations between 2007 and 2012. Worth noting that wage violations often just means they weren't even making minimum wage. So, low pay is not okay. The report calls for the president to have contracting officers consult with the Labor Department to determine whether contractors meet responsibility standards. I was particularly interested in this story this week because it connects up rather nicely with some research that I've been doing for entirely too long, it feels like, for a piece that will be out in next month's print magazine at In These Times. So hint, hint, more on companies that get federal dollars paying their workers very, very little to come. Right. And it is really troubling, I think, that uh, the federal government, which is traditionally seen as a bulwark of labor rights and better labor standards than the private (laughs) sector, is actually one of the chief violators of the standards that it sets. Weird how yeah. that works. Um, speaking of federal standards. Right. Um, but speaking of other groups of workers that the federal government is dicking over, um, there are those without <laughs> any... a long list. Right. Uh, there are those without any jobs at all. And then there are also the workers who are directly employed by the federal government. Right. So just ticking down that list, the budget deal is um, the ink is currently drying and there seems to be a compromise in the works in Congress that would essentially try to alleviate some of the damage of the sequester, that infamous word 
that you know cool. became the buzzword on everybody's lips um, in all the budget negotiations this this past year. It, it alleviates some of the sequester, broadly protects some of the entitlement programs that uh, people were rallying to protect. You know, primarily uh, you know provisions for people with disabilities, programs for children, etc. So those key programs are protected. On the other hand, it's still overall a massive cut, and it often falls the hardest on the workers who can afford those cuts the least. In one major fail of Congress, uh, there's absolutely nothing uh, that will be done about extending emergency unemployment insurance, which is basically allowing federal benefits to be paid to unemployed workers uh, beyond the usual 26 weeks. And this was actually started as kind of an emergency stopgap measure at the peak of the recession when unemployment was hovering around 10%, and it was seen as something that we needed to do right away to sort of rescue these workers. And now people are saying, well, well, it's 2013. Isn't it about time we get rid of this emergency measure? And of course, the problem is uh, not that we've hit some sort of magic number where uh, people need to just, you know, get off of these emergency benefits. The problem is that three, four years on, people are still suffering just as badly as they were when they first implemented this measure. Still so funny how that works. Yes. If you ask a lot of Republican lawmakers, they'll of course insist that um, all this means is that people are becoming dependent on unemployment benefits, right? did Rand Paul say something horrible about yeah, this? Yeah, it, it, you know, because it's clearly an incentive not to work because, you know, uh, who, who wouldn't opt for picking up half of their normal paycheck and being absolutely miserable at home all day and feeling completely useless? You know, that is certainly living high in the hog. And, and obviously, we need to do all we can to uh, keep people from living that lavish lifestyle. So in comes the GOP with its fiscal discipline. Nope, no uh, extension of unemployment insurance. Notably, also no jobs programs. Yeah. And uh, so while we fail to provide, I think the job seeker to job slot ratio is something like three to one at this point. So, oh, you, you know, know, those... Yeah, so those other people who there, there simply is not a job available for them, but they don't get unemployment benefits either, and, and I guess somebody will take care of them. You know, New York is having a charitable coat drive later this season. Yeah, so so there is hope yet. Ugh. Anyway, uh, so th- this will affect uh, millions of people. Uh, I think the estimates are now that about a, a total of 5 million people uh, will be affected by this um, in total by 2014. Um, you know, certainly about... A third of those will um, have their benefits sort of fall away right away um, once they expire. And then there will be more to come because as the recession wears on and more people get pushed off the unemployment rolls, they will fall into this black hole uh, where they have no safety net whatsoever. So um, thanks, Congress. All right. And the other thing in the budget cuts is that if you're lucky enough to still have your job and you work for the federal government, um, your pension is going to be uh, rated even further uh, on top of all of those <laughs> layoffs and the sequestration and the budget chaos that left you uh, out of work for a good chunk of um, the past year. Yeah. Our fun topic that we also discussed in detail last week. Yeah. Because, you know, we can never have too much pension theft. Right. Um, hashtag pension theft. Yeah. Pension theft is not okay. Pension theft is not okay. Low pay is not okay. None of these things are okay. In a little bit of, of sort of interesting, slightly inside baseball news, I'll backtrack a little bit. So I've written for several years now about a campaign by the Writers Guild of America to organize largely freelance, but sometimes not freelance, writers and producers in nonfiction television. So they've had some success. They've had some companies where they voted to have a union that I believe they still don't have a contract at. Then I wrote about that sometime in 2012. And 
they have been targeting a company that is a subsidiary of NBC. So this company called Peacock Productions that apparently makes documentaries for MSNBC and produces some TV shows. This company has been, according to the workers and the union, um, engaging in textbook anti-union tactics, things like seeking to chop up the bargaining unit, saying that workers are really supervisors and thus they can't be members of a union, um, holding captive audience meetings, threatening negative outcomes like the company being disbanded if the workers should vote to organize. And one of the tactics that they've been using at this particular company has been calling on the liberal hosts of MSNBC's political talk shows to stand up for the workers. So they've been calling on Rachel Maddow, Ed Schultz, Melissa Harris-Perry, Chris Hayes to speak up for these workers. Many of these hosts, of course, are known for having low-wage workers on their shows, for talking about these issues. I have appeared on Ed Schultz's show to talk about low-wage workers. And so the story, broken by former belabored co-host Josh Idelson at Salon, is that um, at least Chris Hayes did go to a meeting with some of these workers. Hayes did not confirm this to Josh, but some of the workers did. They would not tell him what went on at the meeting, other than that um, Hayes apparently listened to their concerns and you know, was sympathetic. On one hand, it's, it's as Michelle pointed out to me beforehand, it's sort of a non-story. On the other hand, it's worth noting also that even these sort of very powerful media figures or people that we think of as very powerful media figures may also face consequences for opening their mouths about their parent company's labor practices. Um, this is a problem for many, many people and places on the left um, that we have heard about more than once. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the, the main reason that the workers wanted to just sort of drop this story out there was basically yeah. so that the public is holding Chris Hayes accountable somehow. Like, we know that this went on, and so, you know, we know to We're keep an eye We're possibly holding the other hosts accountable yeah. if they're saying, okay, well, Chris Hayes did this, maybe the rest of you guys will... Right, right. Step up. So my outsider guess is that this is a politically tactical move. On Weird. That, that never happens. Yeah. People so. never leak things to the press because it's a politically tactical right, right. move. So you know, <laughs> hey, I mean, if you're dealing in the world of television, it's all about image. So yeah. if you're dealing in the world of the world, it's all or the world of neoliberalism, perhaps it's yes. all about image. <laughs> That's that is what 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 we're dealing with with MSNBC, despite their their populist overtones. That's but, what we're dealing with. Oh, with everything. all right, all right. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Okay, so uh, that would be uh, sort of what's going on in the television world. Um, Another thing that you might have seen or heard about this past week was um, the uh, education-related protests, and um, there was a national day to reclaim the promise of public education. And it was uh, coordinated by the American Federation of Teachers, um, so they are one of the more prominent Actually, probably, you know, the besides the National Education Association, probably the major uh, teachers union um, in the country. But it was also um, sort of an, uh, an efflorescence of, you know, localized actions going on across the country. And um, it was an opportunity for uh, community groups, teachers, students, um, civic associations, and non-teacher unions to all sort of come together in what the FT called a community union movement for educational equity and excellence. Um, So that sounds like a pretty innocuous, you know, feel-good banner to rally around. But um, in reality, them's kind of fighting words because you know that they're going up against the establishment of so-called education reform. And education reform, another innocuous-sounding phrase. But what we often see um, 
portrayed as education reform in the mainstream media is one particular brand of education reform that reflects kind of a corporate model of school management uh, that leans towards privatization as a solution that many teachers unions see as anti-teacher, anti-equality, um, anti-school. Anti-human yeah. in many ways. Which is kind of weird because, you know. obsession with standardized testing and, right. and technology and, and sort of automating and, and robotic, um, all yes. sorts of things, widget makers comes to mind. Um, the, the idea being that, uh, you know, in this age of competitive uh, capitalism, America needs to get ahead in the world and we need our children to compete. So uh, right now we're going to hear a clip from Billy Easton. He is the head of the Alliance for Quality Education and they're a New York-based initiative. Um, he's sort of talking about the intersection between uh, community groups, organized labor, and the school communities and looking at education in a more holistic way. And he had some interesting things to say about sort of the uh, intersection between um, what labor unions do as civic institutions and the role they play in education reform, not just teachers unions, but, um, you know, um, labor in general. I don't want to, you know, highlight just teachers unions. I mean, we're we're a coalition of community organizations, parent groups that also, you know, works closely with the teachers. And we, in fact, were very instrumental with a bunch of our partner groups in, in helping run this campaign called New Yorkers for Great Public Schools with exactly the agenda of shifting the direction of school reform in New York and in the process affecting the national agenda. Because we've been living under 12 years of Bloomberg driving a corporate reform agenda in New York City and nationally, and absolutely a de Blasio administration creates an opportunity for organized parents, communities, and teachers to push a progressive education reform agenda that's focused on teaching and learning, which includes pre-K. It includes college-ready community schools, includes things to keep students in school instead of suspending them. A whole agenda that's focused on actual needs of students. The Day of Action was billed as sort of a joint effort of a community and labor coalition. And I get the sense that labor means more than just the teachers' unions. So can you talk about sort of the role of, say, unions like SEIU or just more broadly what your general fiscal agenda is and how that may relate to working people's issues in the city and, and New York and beyond? Well, I mean, we really had tremendous partnerships with a number of teach- of unions, not just teachers' unions. And, you know, partially that's based on that we may have common ground on a broader progressive agenda and on the, the need for adequate revenues. But also it's based on the fact that unions are concerned about the education that's going on in their schools. They, their members' kids go to the schools. They are uh, committed to a high-quality community life. They're seeing that as an important priority for them to step up on increasingly. So we found, again, the campaign we ran this year with New Yorkers for Great Public Schools had uh, about 10 unions that participated in that. So that was Billy Easton of the Alliance for Quality Education, and I report more on this for In These Times uh, in uh, this week's week's report uh, that is now on the Working In These Times blog. Yeah, so we're at a, an interesting place in public education, of course, specifically here in New York, because we've got the new mayor, which a lot of these days of action in New York, at least in the last couple of weeks, have been sort of specifically targeting him, trying to at least give the impression that um, he's not going to be given a grace period of, of just, you know, 
goodwill that people are going to really be holding him to some of his campaign promises. And of course, he made a bunch of campaign promises about education. Um, it was a big issue in the election, notably the United Federation of Teachers, the New York City um, Teachers Union, endorsed his opponent, Bill Thompson. Although they did, of course, endorse de Blasio once he won the primary. The other guy was a little bonkers on education, among other things. So one of the things, I, I talked to Bill de Blasio a couple months ago now about some of this about education policy, among other things. And, you know, he did say that he wants to keep mayoral control of schools, so we're not going to go back to things like democratically elected school boards anytime soon, apparently. But he did say that he wanted a sort of kinder, gentler uh, school system. So he was very emphatic about ending this the reign of terror of standardized testing. He was very emphatic about... Charter schools, for instance, paying rent, which is a thing that, uh, it, oh gosh, where was it? It was like, it was the total red meat for Sarah Jaffe moment when he said something about Eva Moskowitz, who is um, one of the charter school uh, impresarias in New York, um, needing to pay rent, um, and something about her salary, which I'm not sure what it is, but it's, um, well, it's a lot more okay. than mine. Right. Um, yeah, so it'll be very interesting to see if he takes up any of these issues, um, particularly standardized testing, because I think we are in a moment, as this day of action really shows, that particularly standardized testing is not terribly popular anymore, that parents are really not thrilled with it, teachers are certainly not thrilled with it. And, of course, the people who are pushing it are also often sending their children to private schools where they don't have to deal with it. It's it's an interesting moment. I, I feel like... I'm slightly optimistic about something for once in my life that we might actually be seeing changes on this. And, I, you know, we've, we've returned to this subject over and over on the on the podcast this year. Um, we started off with Karen Lewis. We talked to Dan Denver about the debacle that is Philadelphia schools. We've sort of returned over and over to the, the real question of education because it seems to be a place, among other things, where the attack on unions has been really blatant, obvious, and unforgiving. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also interesting that one of the Bill de Blasio's big initiatives is universal pre-K, because yeah. um, that's sort of even expanding the scope. I mean, it's yeah. programmatically expanding the scope of K-12 to pre-K through 12, but it's also fostering this idea that the purpose of schools is to actually sort of enrich kids' lives in a very real way, um, and that often involves starting early. Um, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, despite Michael Bloomberg de Blasio's predecessor, Michael Bloomberg's uh, promises to overhaul the education system, he was never really um, about putting in the resources and the mm -hmm. investments. So, um, and, and I know, Sarah, you've written on, you know, uh, tests being administered to kindergartners yeah. now. So, yeah. you know, this is, uh, you know, a as we're putting harsher and harsher you know, requirements uh, on children to perform to a certain standard. Um, we're not giving them the, you know, academic or social support that they need early right. in life to really make the most of that so-called yeah. education they're getting. Let's just hope we don't get universal pre-K standardized testing. Yeah. That would be, like, the worst of both worlds. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, they actually do um, they have, like, a screening process for pre-K. And, and sat that's oh, one of the reasons God. we need universal pre-K as, as sort of a guarantee in the school system. Because right now, I mean, there's a limited number of pre-K slots in New York 
parents like sort of you know falling all over each other trying yeah. to get their kids into the best, best pre-k programs so it's very sad yeah it's it's one of those instances where it seems crystal clear that more competition just means more kids getting to turn a phrase left behind mm-hmm. um and one of the things also that's interesting is if you are bringing sort of pre-K teachers into, as you said, the into K through 12, you're bringing them into K through 12 organizing, you're bringing them into sort of the regular school system in a, a way. What does that mean for how we see pre-K teachers who these days are often, you know, tre- they're paid less, um, they're treated as less skilled teachers, which I don't know my worst nightmare is having to wrangle a room full of like three or four year olds that sounds like i could never do that i feel like you have to be a superhero to do that yeah i would be much better off with a room full of high school students (laughs) like but you know so clearly the pay has nothing to do with how hard the work is but yeah it would be interesting to see if universal pre-k became the standard at least here in new york if then we could have a real serious conversation about universal good standards for pre-k teachers and i mean like decent pay speaking of low pay is not okay and universal benefits and sort of a level of respect that is at this point not really given to teachers who teach younger kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course this goes back to the things that we've discussed earlier about care labor, um, about gender divisions in the workforce and the idea that um, pre-K occupies this very curious sort of tier in the education system where it's not quite academic, it's not quite childcare, it's seen as something in between. And so um, it's seen by some uh, as as sort of a nurturing profession and therefore somehow um, less worthy of decent pay and standards. Um, And on the other hand, we now have the research to show that um, early education is absolutely crucial and yeah. probably more influential in a lot oh, yeah. of ways than than the education you might get in a high school classroom, right? I mean, those are those are crucial formative years, and we're entrusting these people with um, with children at, at their most critical stage of, of you know neurological development, of right. mental development, and so um, if you want the best for your kids in those situations, then you have to you know attract good people and you have to give them a sustainable living right. and that, yeah. that shouldn't be too much to ask but unfortunately it's sadly overlooked even as we you know emphasize the importance of early education right I mean yeah. what were one of the biggest uh, programs to suffer under the sequester head start programs right mm-hmm. and you still know. right they're not being right Early education programs for poor kids, right? I mean, the kids who need it the most. Uh, sadly, they are uh, they're getting the brunt of the budget cuts. And so if, if they can't be a priority, then uh, God, let's hope, you know, at least New York City comes up with some kind of solution. Um, and this is why I think it's really important to pay attention to local politics and things like that. Because, um, well, spoiler alert, I'm going to get into some of this during ARG as well. But you can actually do very interesting things on a city level, particularly in a big liberal city like New York, if we actually have a viable universal pre-K system, it could be a model for the country. And actually, um, one of the things de Blasio is promoting as well in order to pay for universal pre-K is to, uh, or one of the things that advocates have proposed is to tax the rich. Um, So that is the big challenge, right? The money has to come from somewhere. And the taxes have to get approved by our tax-cutting what is it? Oh, goodness. I'm trying to remember what Blake Zeff at Salon calls them. I think it, um, 
it's like specs. It's socially progressive, economically conservative Democrats. Um, kind of like blue dogs or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Cuomo would never, ever, ever call himself a blue dog, though. But Cuomo certainly does love tax cuts and putting Republican former Governor George Pataki in charge of helping to find tax cuts. And one of the other planks that was advanced in the National Day of Action platform was to equalize funding for public schools. Um, This may not seem like a labor issue. It might seem like more of a local property tax issue because that's what often gets discussed when we talk about school funding. But therein lies the problem because a lot of school funding, and hence teacher salaries and resources for students, relies on local wealth. And um, obviously that is going to... Um, reinforce and replicate the class divides that exist um, across school districts, and it's only going to foster segregation. It's only going to leave poor schools even poorer, and also make them more prone to these drastic overhaul measures that uh, the No Child Left Behind law has really put into place, which involve school closures, so-called school turnarounds, which is basically a term that they borrowed from corporate America, (laughs) hostile takeovers of schools, and, you know, the bane capital of public schooling. And um, and a, a lot of this has led to a proliferation of charter schools um, and ever-dwindling resources for public schools. So do you see a pattern here? That's why the AFT was uh, you know, basically calling for school districts nationwide to mobilize against this. So we saw um, you know, places from Chicago to Philadelphia um, to Florida, you know, all calling for a more equitable approach to education. Um, a lot of that is resources. A lot of this is a bread and butter issue. But a lot of it is also sort of a programmatic issue and um, that's another one of the issues that they tackled in their uh, talking points which is basically uh, to challenge uh, some of these alternative certification programs Um, unions and individual teachers um, have often militated against these programs because while they may seem like a very you know, flashy kind of um, happening do-gooder initiative on the surface (laughs) one thing that programs like Teach for America ultimately don't produce is a sustainable education workforce that is career-oriented. And that comes from the communities that they serve, right? right? I mean, when when your whole sort of MO is getting these nice Ivy League kids to spend a couple of years in an inner-city, quote-unquote, public school before they go off to work at a hedge fund or or go into politics as, once again, hint, hint, upcoming, where they become the next Michelle Rhee or the next... um, what is the guy's name in Chicago that just got voted out in Bridgeport and is now like getting a position in Illinois? Listeners, tell me who I'm forgetting. You know what I'm talking about. Um, Kenzo, if you're out there, tell me what I'm wrong about. But, you know, that, that is a pattern that's happening across the country. And um, as, you know, these programs try to argue that all you need is, you know, a super motivated Ivy League fresh-faced graduate um, to really shake up the school system, um, a few years down the line, you know, we'll ultimately probably see some of the um, devastating consequences of that. There Ultimately, you know, uh, yeah, right. I mean, the, the the thing is, there's no real shortcut to giving kids a good education. Um, and, you know, whenever you cut resources in one area, it shows up in another. So there's really no cheap way to invest in the next generation. It's something that lawmakers really ought to consider before they try to, uh, you know, um, raise educational standards on the cheap, as it were. Uh, 
I mean, I don't think that they're trying to raise educational standards on the cheap. I think that they're trying to make some money and they don't particularly care how well a lot of these kids do because they know that those kids are just going to be working at the McDonald's and Walmarts of the future. Yes, that, that, is, that is true. Um, I, I wouldn't say the hedge funds and the Wall Street investors no, are not the, interested at uh, corporate all. Corporate philanthropists are um, that interested in genuine student achievement, but I think that the way that they're able to market themselves so effectively right. is by saying that the old system isn't effective and that our nation is losing its greatest its greatest right. most precious source of potential by right. um waste you know squandering generations of school children right but when and, your entire framing is competition and races then that remind should remind all of us that those races have losers and what do they think is going to happen to all those people who don't win the competition all right well i think that's why the aft tried to brand it as a day to reclaim education uh, mm-hmm. which is essentially to reframe the debate right yeah. i mean even when we talk about school reform i mean that is a cue for um you know the arnie duncan version of uh, or the Wendy Kopp version of uh, of school reform, which is one very narrow view of it. And unfortunately, that has become the dominant framework for the way we think about changing schools. Um, So, you know, teachers' unions are often demonized as old-fashioned and effective bureaucracies. Um, So maybe they have something worth saying. Who knows? Just might be crazy enough to work. You know, paying teachers a decent salary. Who'd have thunk it? Weird. Weird. So, right, well, now that we've ranted about hedge funds, now we're going to rant about Wall Street some more. So, Sarah, time for ARG. <laughs> yeah, I'm not actually changing the subject when it comes to ARG, like I hinted at earlier. I am The piece that I was wishing I'd written this week is um, Anna Simonton at Alternet, who was looking at the uh, tech bros and Wall Street billionaires who are shoveling money into school board races, which I think I've talked about before on Belabored. But this particular time, she's looking at a race in Atlanta, where tech billionaires, including Sheryl Sandberg's husband and a scion of the Walton family, um, have thrown money at a few school board candidates who also, dumped it on this All Collect Connects, happen to be alumni of the Teach for America program. And she looks at Teach for America's political arm, Leadership for Educational Equality, which is really, it's one of those lovely Orwellian names that means exactly the opposite of what it says, because its goal is putting as we said, Teach for America alumni in political positions, um, like strategic ones on the Atlanta school board. You mean Teach for America alumni don't spend the rest of their lives sort of struggling in a small classroom somewhere? Taping their students' mouths shut? No, yeah. sadly, that's not what happens. In any case, um, equality, this is definitely not. Um, instead, it's much more evidence of the way that economic inequality is shaping this public policy as well rich people are able to buy a school board election. And it costs a lot less to buy a school board election, you should note. These people were, um, I think the private donations to some of these candidates were in the um, 70000 to $85,000 range as opposed to however much the last presidential election costs. Anybody remember? Some couple of billion So, you know, you can get a lot of bang for your buck if you throw a couple thousand dollars at a school board candidate who lives on the other side of the country from where you and your children may be. (laughs) And of course, of course, of course, because it's not just ideology with these people, although it is a lot ideology. A lot of them are invested in the very charter school companies that they want to help get a toehold or in some cases expand the toehold they've already got in the area or they make some fancy technology that might be used in the classroom you get my drift 
So oh. the piece is great. We'll put a link to it up at the Descent website. And Michelle, is that not a conflict of interest? Sorry, I, I just can't. There's no rule against that. I mean, isn't it seems so self dealing that you? Michael Bloomberg is yeah. the mayor of New York and also makes a lot of money off of his uh, stock That's true. ticker he, right. computer he funds terminal the things. Welfare state, right? Of New York, so, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I'm sorry, I just um, that that's uh, shocking. But oh, oh well, shocking, I guess. But not actually. Right. That shocking, and and then right? the thing when is, when you think about it, I mean, when the, this is why people, you know, uh, you might think a school board election is not a big deal. Like, who turns out for school board elections? <laughs> if you yeah, have school board elections, unlike us, yeah. The uh, so uh, my arg for this week is um, sort of a, a send off to Nelson Mandela, which is actually looking at his accomplishments as um, you know an inspiration to the labor movement in South Africa and. Um, unlike in the U.S., uh, South Africa has always had a very militant labor movement, and that, that was actually one of the strongest social institutions that was mobilizing against um, apartheid. And, and in his uh, famous um, uh, trial speech from the dock, um, as he was about to be sentenced, uh, you know, as he was about to enter um, a lifelong prison term, he actually openly declared his militancy, his willingness to die for uh, the cause of struggling against the apartheid state. And in, in that in that speech, um, he actually referenced the right to strike a number of times, um, and he really saw um, the empowerment of workers, primarily, you know, the the black low wage mine workers of South Africa, as one of the key instruments for galvanizing. Uh, the populace uh, to overthrow white minority rule. The labor structure very much mirrored the power structure in South African society, and Nelson Mandela was pretty keen on that. Um, he understood uh, better than most, uh, given his affiliation with um, the left and the Communist Party. Um, oh, yeah, I said it, sorry. Um, and uh, th- that, you know, he, he understood that, that you know, you needed to mobilize labor, you need to mobilize these forces on the left in order to make South Africans feel like they not only had a political stake, but also an economic stake in bringing about real change. Um, sadly, I, I think the bookend to Mandela's labor legacy is, um, you know, a bit of a um, a bit of a negative one in the sense that South Africa remains one of the most unequal countries in the world, even in its post-apartheid state. And to some degree, that mirrors the narrative of organized labor as a whole, um, as we've seen um, sort of the hegemony of neoliberalism kind of expand around the globe. Um, South Africa is still a party to that. It's still locked into the multinational mining industry. Um, much of the wealth is still um, controlled by white-owned companies and by multinational companies that continue to have a very predatory impact on the uh, natural resource extraction of the country. That is one thing that Nelson Mandela was never able to effectively challenge as a politician, and it remains to be seen whether um, any part of the ANU or any part of that that activist legacy that Nelson Mandela helped shape um, will take on that mantle in the coming years. Um, South Africa's um, miners, you know, they frequently are engaged in labor battles. Uh, You might remember last year there was an awful massacre of striking mine workers where, you know, dozens of workers were killed. Um, And this they were murdered at the hands of the post-apartheid state. So that should be a lesson to everyone, as we remember Mandela this week, that, um, you know, you can have an overtures towards racial equality, but without real um, economic redistribution of wealth, that 
will not mean very much to most of the people on the ground. And that's John Nichols writing in The Nation. That's Nelson Mandela, Union Man. And on that note, redistribute the wealth. Yes. (laughs) Here and everywhere. and... And everywhere. And we will see you next week. Bye. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, hell not. We can't.